After the king had settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, if you can keep your Bibles open to that passage, that'll be very helpful. Um, I'd like to extend again Mike's welcome to you all here tonight. My name is Des Smith. I'm one of the student ministers here. It's really lovely to have you here tonight. As we continue our series in 2 Samuel, which we've been gradually working our way through over the past weeks, I want to ask you a question. Who is your king? Who is your king? It's not just a rhetorical question, it was a question that was in fact asked of all people over the age of 18 in this country in 1999 in the form of the Republican referendum. This country was asked whether we finally wanted to cut the knot between us and the mother country, uh, whether we were to have a republic or whether we would keep our queen. And as we all know, uh, we chose to keep our queen. We chose to keep the monarchy at least in a figurehead position over the top of us. We voted no to a republic and yes for the monarchy. But it was interesting talking to my friends who very often, who quite a number of them actually voted against the republic as to exactly why they voted against it. It wasn't their attachment to the idea of a queen. Rather, it was actually just their indifference to the queen. They said, well, look, either way, it's not going to make much difference. The queen's just a figurehead. 
it's going to be an awful lot of fuss and possibly changing a flag and you know, kind of changing a few names and things. It's going to be a pain. So all things being equal, let's just stay as we are. They didn't vote against the Republic because they loved the Queen. They voted for, against it because they seemed indifferent. You see, for us as a nation, the question of who's your king, who's your queen, doesn't really seem that relevant. Australia has been independent of Britain for years. And we still have the Queen's representative, Paul Dale, um, (laughs) who, for those of you who don't know, is our proudly British minister here. Uh, But of course, he's just a figurehead. Now, I don't know if you know, but an interesting thing, this St John's here in Kirribilli is actually the Queen's church. I just don't mean in the sense that it's the Anglican Church and she's the supreme governor of it. Everyone turn around, just turn around really briefly and look up there and you see the crest. E.R. Elizabeth Regina. That crest in Sydney only appears in this church building because when, when the Queen is in Sydney she stays in Government House and this officially is where she's supposed to come. Now I think it's fair to say she hasn't come recently. Don't worry, the follow-up team is chasing her up. the point, has any of you ever noticed that she's not here? Well, no. Why? We just, well, we don't expect her because she doesn't live here. But we don't really think that much about kings. We don't think that much about who's our ruler. Now, for many in people's history, that has not been the case. Who is your king and what do they do has been a vital question. Asking us what we think about the monarchy now doesn't really seem to matter. But if we'd lived 500 years ago, who was your ruler mattered a great deal. The difference between a good king and a bad king was the difference between prosperity and poverty, between freedom and imprisonment, and in some cases, between life and death. Who was your king and queen? Well, for us, we don't mind so much. Who was your king or queen for someone, well, most people throughout history? It's a vitally important question. If we broaden it out to us, who is our leader? Who is our government? That matters a great deal. Who is it who governs our society? Who is it who leads me personally through life? They are are vital questions to ask. And they're questions which this chapter, perhaps one of the most significant in the Old Testament, it's a real purple passage, really hones in on. Who is your king? Now Israel is no exception to this question. We see that here. Now it's good to set it in its context as we had it read out to us today. We're going to do this in two parts. We have the first half read out and I'll explain it and then do my best and then the next half and then we'll explain that again. But it's good to set this in context. Turn with me, you turn to another purple patch in the Bible. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Let me give you the setting for this. Israel has been set free from Egypt. They have been led out of, it, uh, out of the, in the Exodus by Moses. They are perched on the edge of Canaan, ready to enter. They don't have a king. Moses is their leader, and yet they're told this. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king up, uh, let us sing a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. 
Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now the passage goes on to say that crucially the king is to obey the law of the Lord. The law that God has handed down through Moses, the king is to keep. He's to read it day after day, night and night and morning. And if that happens, verse 21, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. You see, according to this passage, kingship, kingdoms, kings are good. God just assumes that people will want a king and he doesn't forbid them from having one. Rather, he says, you are to have a king and in fact I'll choose a king for you. That's one of the prerequisites of the king you're going to have. He has to be this kind of person. Now, of course there are caveats. The Bible recognises that power can be abused and that this king must be subject to the laws of God. That he mustn't go after women. That he mustn't go after wealth. That rather... Israel, when it has its king, must still have God as its ultimate ruler who will ultimately rule it through his law, through his word but will do so through the means of his king. And so Israel proceeds into the land and proceeds over the next couple of hundred years to conquer it. Now that period is the period called the Judges which is recited in the book called Judges which comes directly after Deuteronomy. And it's not a good time. All sorts of things are going wrong. Israel seems to spiral further and further and further into immorality and distance from God. Now, God doesn't abandon them. He does raise up people, judges, on occasions to heal certain problems, to fix things. He gives them his spirit for a specific purpose, to save them from their own sin and to save them from going away from him. But yet still the problems persist because those judges die. And then, once they're out of the way, Israel forgets everything they learnt, go back into even more and worse sin, and God needs to repeat the whole cycle again. The judges were limited in their scope. They died. Not only that, you look at some of the judges, they weren't so crash-hot themselves on the whole sin thing. Some of them were rotters. You'd never want them in charge of your country. And so when we come to a passage like this, fast-forwarding through several hundred years of history to about a thousand BC, when the king has been set, when the land has been settled, and we see that a king is in charge, we should expect that to be a good thing. That God has said there will be a king in Israel, that the terrible period of the judges is over, where the repeated refrain throughout judges is, there was no king in Israel that day, and each man did as he saw fit in his own eyes. Now there is a king in Israel and things should be fine. Look with me at 2 Samuel 7 verses 1 to 3. I don't know what the scene is here. I like to think of it as David at night time, maybe or as the dusk sets, he and his chief advisor Nathan the prophet sitting down after a hard day on the roof of the palace overlooking and thinking about things. And it reads like this. Chapter 7 verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. You see, 
things aren't going well. You can see there in verse 1. The king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. The kingship seemed to be doing its job in Israel. In fact, the kingship seemed to be doing its job so well that David was almost a bit embarrassed. Here he is sitting in this enormous palace and off in the distance he sees a tent. And in the tent, the tabernacle, is where God lives. David lives in a mansion. God lives in an A-frame. There seems to be something terribly wrong about that. If I were invited to work in the kitchens of Buckingham Palace, mopping out the floors and and washing up dishes, I'd be enormously surprised to ever meet Elizabeth Regina. Come down the stairs, poodle into the kitchen and say, um, look, just when you're finished... uh, just duck up to the, the royal quarters. Uh, it's alright, they're all yours. You just stay there in the master bedroom. And then quite confused, come up there to see her and her husband, the prince, kind of go off down the lawn and pitch in a tent and sleep there. While I, the kitchen hand, slept in the sumptuary of the palace. How much more when David looks out from his palace and sees God living in a tent? Surely he should be built a house for himself, David thinks. And Nathan, seeing his good intentions, agrees. Whatever you do, that will be the right thing. And yet God has a surprise for him. And we see that there in verses 4 following. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? You see, God says to David through Nathan, look, I can see that your intentions are good, but don't forget who's running the show here. I brought you up out of Egypt. I have made you king over Israel. I have settled you here and I'll work out my accommodation. You don't need to build me a cedar palace because you only do the things that I tell you to do and I've never told you to do it. I'm quite happy where I am. I've never asked anyone about that. Rather, what I'm more interested in is settling you in the land. I want my people whom I've brought out. I want them settled in the land before I have a house built for myself. You see that there in verse 8 and following. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. You see, God doesn't seem overly fussed about where he's going to live. Rather, he is concerned with keeping his promise to his people. That he will settle them in the land. And that's what he wants to do. But even more than that, even more than that, he wants to secure over those people a kingship, a sovereign who will last forever. So that that people will never again be subject to the ups and downs of judges and kings who do the wrong thing. Israel having just come off the back of Saul, who does exactly that. David wanted to build God a house. Well, God says, well, actually, I want to build you a house. 
Now, of course, he's not referring to an actual house. He's already got that. That's exactly what David's saying. But rather what he's saying is, I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty which will go forever. Yes, I will have a temple at one point. Your son will build it. But, and I will call him my own son. But he will be a king who will live forever. I'm going to build a, king, a kingship, a house, that will last for eternity. And there's nothing that can stop it. Death cannot annul this promise. Look at verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Death cannot nullify this promise. His kingdom will rule forever. Sin cannot destroy it. Look at verse 14 and 15. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And time will not exhaust it. Look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. You see, God will finally come in and solve the problems of Israel's leadership once and for all. Where the judges had chronically failed by losing themselves in sin, leading a sinful nation. And even where the judges were good, their good effects were limited by the fact that they would eventually die and not pass on to a successor. God has said, no, that will not go on. One day I will give you a king who will rule forever for whom sin will not be a problem and for whom eternity will be his dwelling. God's kingdom will be everlasting. In the depression here in Sydney, one day, a Sunday morning, a man walked into St Barnabas Broadway. He was an alcoholic. And there he heard the message of Jesus. He heard the message of the cross. The message that God had installed an eternal king. And struck by that fact, struck by the fact of God's eternal kingship, of the very concept of eternity, he went out and devoted his life to that very concept. He wrote with a piece of chalk every day the word eternity somewhere on the streets of Sydney. His name was Arthur Stace. And we're all familiar with it if we've seen the 2,000 fireworks display on the Harbour Bridge. It is as if God has said to David, Eternity. I'll always be with my people. It is as if in perfect copper plate script that will never be removed, God has taken a piece of chalk and written it on David's line Eternity. I will always rule you. You will have a son who will be my son. And that son doesn't take very long to come along. In fact, it's only one son down the line. It's Solomon, David's son. And we see that in 1 Chronicles 22. I'll just read it so you don't need to turn to it. David is coming to the end of his life and he hands the kingdom over to Solomon and he says this. This is what God has promised me. 
you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And that's exactly what we see in history. Solomon does exactly that. The kingdom of Israel flourishes under Solomon in a way that it never did under David. The boundaries were never so large as they were under Solomon. And Solomon did build a house for God's name. He did build the temple. And it survived until it was finally knocked down by the Babylonians 500 years later. And yet, within a few years, it seems as though God's promise has failed. Because the much touted son of David who would have an eternal kingship seems very soon to have drifted into exactly the behaviour that God warned them against in Deuteronomy. It's interesting to compare the final years of Solomon's reign with the promises in Deuteronomy 17. Everything that the Bible says, everything that Deuteronomy says that a king shouldn't do, Solomon does. It says the king shouldn't have many wives. Solomon had 300 and 700 girlfriends. It says that he shouldn't make up much money. Well, Solomon was renowned amongst the nations for being the richest king on earth. It says that he shouldn't go after many horses as if to be able to prove to the nations that their power lay in the military rather than the Lord their God. And yet Solomon has an enormous army. You see, God, and eventually, most importantly, he dies. And he leaves his kingdom in tatters on the verge of civil war which would eventually split the nation into two and would never be recovered. All of God's fine-sounding words seem in the person of Solomon to have crumbled into nothing. And they seem that way for hundreds of years. Until another man comes on the scene. A carpenter from a hick town in Nazareth. Who comes on the scene and claims to be that Christ. Claims to be that king who will rule forever who was crucified for that claim, but who crucially demonstrates that he is the ever-living king because on the third day he rises from the dead to demonstrate that he is the ruler of the world forever. Hebrews 1 puts it like this. In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. And who is he referring to? Well, it's the Son, 2 Samuel 7. Or again, the writer of the Hebrews says, I will be his, Jesus' father, and he, Jesus, will be my son. Straight out of 2 Samuel 7, 14. Jesus is the king who rules forever. Human governments are good. We must respect them. God has put them in charge of us. And he asks us to pray for them, to pray that they will punish evil and reward good. And it's important that as Christian people we do pray for them, recognising that God has established them. But we must also recognise that they are limited. They are limited by sin and they are limited by death, just as the kings of Israel were limited by sin and limited by death. We can't too much fa- put too much faith in human role, human rules to change the world. No, rather Christians have 
a more firm hope than that. A king who has never sinned. And a king who, when he did die, did not be, was not subjected to it, but rather rose and crushed death so that he might rule forever. It is an enormous source of comfort for Christians that their God, their ruler, their king rules forever. That he will never let us down, but he will always be there. As the hymn says, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greatest son. And exactly how David does praise them, we'll see in our next reading. Thanks. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O Sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. How great you are, O Sovereign Lord! There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. And the men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O Sovereign Lord, you are God, your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. See, it's an amazing response, isn't it, to this incredible promise that God has given to David. What's first of all astonishing to me is just the immediacy with which he he hears this prophecy, something so different, God contradicting him, and he just bursts into prayer. Then then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you brought me thus far? He's immediately praying. And I wonder if we can learn something from that. We are bombarded by the promises of God every time I pick up a Bible, every time I listen to a sermon. I hear God's promises presented to me. I hear the fact that this world is not all there is. That there is a God who lives over me eternally, a King who looks after me eternally. 
But I don't pray. God does something great for me. Maybe if it's a small thing. And yet if I even ever remember to pray, it's only as an aside or later. David prays spontaneously. And it's interesting the way you look at the prayer here as, as we kind of look at it. it, it it's, on the one hand, you see David marvelling at God's grace and it's so humble the way he puts it. But on the other hand, there's a real confidence here that he comes to God with. I think the first bit, you, know, the, you see this humility in the opening lines there in verses 18 to 24. You see, God's word has corrected David's view of himself. You see, David now recognises that it is God who is in charge. Who am I, O sovereign Lord? What's my family that you brought me this far? And that in in establishing his household forever, God has been unbelievably graceful to him. Verse 19, And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future, uh, about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? He's just absolutely bowled over. But even more than that, he's struck by the fact that in the end, God is on about even more than just him. God has done an amazing thing by promising to to David that his line will go forever. And yet David sees beyond that to see that David has not just been blessed so that David will feel good or that Israel will be well ruled but that God will be glorified. God is glorified by making and keeping his promises to David. And you can see that overflowing out of David's mouth. Verse 21, for the sake of your word and according to your will you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. Or verse 23, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before you and the gods uh, and whom you redeemed from Egypt. Make a name for yourself. God's making a name for himself by doing these astonishing things with Egypt and, and with Israel. Look at verses 25 and 26. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant in his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. You see, David's chief concern here isn't just what God has promised to him, but what that will make God look like. He loves the fact that God has made these promises and is going to keep them so that God will look amazing to the people around him. That they will see his glory. And that might seem self-centred in a way. It might seem self-centred for God to want everything to be about him. I mean, it's one of the major criticisms we say about someone, isn't it? That they're self-centred. They think that they're the centre of the universe. And of course that's wrong. We shouldn't be the centre of the universe. But not because that's intrinsically wrong, but because we're not the centre of the universe. God is the one person whom you can't criticise about that. Oh yeah, God, he just just thinks he's the centre of the... Oh yeah kind of is the centre of the universe. It's okay for God to seek praise and glory and honour. In fact, in a funny kind of way, for him to seek anything else would be idolatry because he would be worshipping something other than the centre of the universe himself. God must be given all of the glory and all of the honour and all of the praise and every part of David's life and every part of Israel's life and by extension, every part of ours must do that. When I do pray, when I am thankful to God, so often I'm not thankful for 
how it will make him look to other people. As a church, shouldn't we be praying and praising God, praying that he would be working in us so that other people might look in and say, not what an amazing church, they're all so together. Rather, look at that bunch. How on earth do they ever manage to stay together? They're hopeless and yet somehow God has brought this amazingly diverse bunch of people together and has stuck them all together so they actually love one another. What kind of a God does that? That's the kind of God I need to find out about. Isn't that what we should be praying for? That here in Kirribilli they might see this church as a totally countercultural movement where people love and serve one another, not because of anything in themselves but only because God has done it. That God through his love poured out through his son in the cross, the ever-living king has made that possible. Isn't that what I should be praying for? Isn't that what we should be praying for? And yet at the same time, just as David is humble, there is an astonishing confidence to his prayers. Look at verse 25. God, you've done all these great things up to verse 24. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant in his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. God makes a promise and David audaciously holds him to it. He repeats it back to him and says, you've said this, now keep it. Look in verse 28. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you've promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that he may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. See how David prays? He's so humble. It's all about God. It's all about the glory of God. And yet, he recognises that if God is glorious, if God is righteous, if God keeps his word, then he can be held to it and loves to have it repeated back to him. It shows that we are listening. God, we have heard your promises and we hold you to them. If you think that sounds audacious, listen to the words of Oliver Cromwell's uh, uh, 1600s guy, uh, Thomas Goodwin, his chaplain, on the promises of God, said that we should sue him for them. God has promised you glory, God has promised you salvation, sue him for it, sue him for it. They were his exact words. God is trustworthy. Do I know that God wants to save the people of Kirribilli? Yes, I do. Why? Because he's promised it in the Bible. Can I pray that for him? Yes. Can I hold him to his word? Yes. Why? Because he said it. And because he doesn't go back on his word. Do I know that Christ wants me to look more like him and serve him more deeply? Yes. He has said it. Can I hold it to him? Yes. Because he said it. Repeat God's words back to him in our prayers. God, you have said this. I am listening. I can show you that I am listening because I am giving you the very words that you gave me. God, save me. God, make me more like your son. God, reach out to this world because you have said you would. And your son, who has saved it, lives forever to rule over them. David gives us a model for our prayer. He gives us a model for the attitude of our church. And the whole chapter shows us what it really means to be ruled by someone. Not by a foreign monarch, but by the everlasting, ever-living king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are awed by what you have done for us. We are just, there's no reason whatsoever why you should have had anything to do with us. Uh, and yet you did so 
because you love us and because you love to glorify your name. We pray that we might reflect that. We pray that we might be humbled before that, realising that in the end it is you who must be glorified and your Son whom you love. And yet at the same time, please help us to be confident in the way we approach you, almost audacious, holding you to your promises, because we know that that is what glorifies you. We thank you for the fact that all of this is not mere pie in the sky, but that we can know that you are the ever-living God, because we have seen you, and we have seen the wounds in your hands and feet, and we have seen you alive, and we have a record of that in the scriptures. We know that you rule forever, and we know that you love us. Please help us to live and to pray to you accordingly. Amen.